Instead of continuing to fight for limited resources, could it be that the climate crisis is making us realize that maybe there really is enough to go around if we get control of it? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Here we are, well into the 21st century, yet it seems we're still operating on the same basic societal assumptions as the prehistoric cave dwellers. I'm referring to the worldwide belief in scarcity. Could it be that scarcity that has defined so much of human culture for so many centuries has now become a useless, indeed counterproductive assumption, which is no longer relevant? Scarcity in the 2020s no longer really defines the world. There is, in fact, plenty. Yet, scarcity remains the basic building block of our economic structure. What if it no longer needs to rule? What if we recognize that, in fact, there is enough to go around? What interests does this new understanding threaten? What possibilities does it open? Is such a new world actually within our reach? No doubt some would fiercely fight against such an equitable world. Why is it that a few billionaires are so driven by the intense frenzy for more, more, more? Is there another way other than fighting for that small sliver of pie? Could we perhaps be at the cusp of a new evolutionary phase of human development? Stan Cox is our guest, and he has a new article in Yes! magazine in advance of his upcoming book, The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next Pandemic. The article is titled, Enough for Everyone. Stan Cox, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Good to be with you, Bert. Stan Cox is the author of many books, including the new one, A Path to a Liverable Future. He's also uh, author of The Green Deal, New Green New Deal and Beyond, Ending Climate Emergency While We Still Can, Losing Our Cool, Uncomfortable Truths About Our Air-Conditioned World, and Finding New Ways to Get Through the Summer, Any Way You Slice It, The Past, Present, and Future of Rationing, and How the World Breaks, Life and Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia, which is co-authored with Paul Cox. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, L.A. Times, New Republic, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, and Salon. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Stan Cox. As, mm-hmm. as long as I can remember, the health of our economy has been measured by something called the gross domestic product. What, what is that, and in what ways is it now a flawed tool? But the gross domestic product is defined as the total value of all goods and services that are produced within the borders of a country. Uh, and it's not – we treat it now like um, it, it's, it's a real thing, but it, it hasn't been a thing for more than 90 years um, and it's um, it's irrelevant to 
the the well-being of the entire population of the country. It, um, it uh, an increase in the gross domestic product indicates that um, you know co- companies are making more money. Um, that the that rich people are, are getting richer and just uh, and on the very small margin there may be some uh, increase in uh in income for um working people but it's um the the uh, pursuit of gdp over the years has been the main obstacle to um doing something about the uh the climate emergency because it, <clears throat> as we've been hearing uh for decades now well we can't um achieve those kinds of cuts in greenhouse emissions because it'll be bad for the economy which means gdp may grow at uh 2% instead of 3% but that that's the sole measure supposedly of um how well off we are as a nation when it really doesn't indicate that at all. And to use old tools for the current moment, you know, we got to get with it really here. You know, in, in the 50s, when I was growing up, a sign of progress was the growth of industry. The proliferation of smokestacks was a visible assurance that things were really good. The future was so bright, as someone said, we had to wear shades, as the 1980s pop song went. Mm-hmm. Now everyone is at least talking about tackling climate change that this unrestrained growth has caused. The first Earth Day was more than 50 years ago. And now, because we have kicked the can down the road again and again and again, the threat to the planet's seriously endangered survival requires we move emissions reductions at what you call a breakneck speed. You're right. The Earth has been telling, asking, shouting, enough at humanity more loudly every year for the past three decades. But the nations of the world have not been listening. Please say more about that. Well, let's go back those three decades um, when, and, and at that time, the public um, governments, et cetera, were, were just um, becoming aware that um, uh, climate change might really be a serious problem. There was, and there, so there was the uh, Earth Summit in, in uh, Rio de Janeiro in, in Brazil, um, at which uh, all the world's leaders were there and promising to, um, you know, we're, we're going to do something about uh, ecological uh, um, degradation and destruction. Um, and our president, George H.W. Bush, um, infamously in his speech, said, yeah, we'll do what we can, but the American way of life is not up for negotiation, meaning that (laughs) overproduction and overconsumption of material goods um, is non-negotiable. We we are going to continue doing that. And that has been the reason that we... uh, all the climate negotiations, uh, Kyoto, Paris, uh, through the decades, um, we um, in the United States and and the other affluent countries have uh, knocked down uh, proposals. They've gutted um, uh, climate action, um, despite the 
the pleas of the um, smaller, more vulnerable countries, island nations, and so forth, who are are seeing now seeing the suffering the results yeah. of uh, that neglect. Boy, prophets uber alles. Hmm. You know, it's time to take a look at that. As you point out, the pollution warming the planet is sourced overwhelmingly in the northern hemisphere. That's where the pollution is coming from. Yet the southern hemisphere is at effect. They've been at effect of our celebrated Western expansion for centuries. We have reaped the profits. And as you say, they have paid the price over and over again. You write... Payment in kind on our carbon debt should come in addition to reparations. There's a big word the North already owes, not only for climate loss and damage, but also for colonialism, slavery, imperialism, and their associated evils. End of quote. Reparations. That's certainly a hot button. What do you mean? Why is this a requirement to get the task adequately addressed? It's going to take a, a lot of resources to um, both um, stop the um, the continued um, release of uh, greenhouse emissions and also to repair the damage that's also been done. And there's a, a basic ethical uh, principle in uh, dealing with damages that... Um, the the party who has caused the damage is um, responsible for uh, paying for it, either in money or in kind. Um, and, um, and not only that, uh, the um, global north, as the the party who has caused the damage, has also been the uh, primary beneficiary of causing the damage and. So we're um, doubly uh, responsible for it, and also we're the only ones who can afford to pay to uh, <clears throat> clean it up. Um, yes. The, uh, the people who are suffering the most um, uh, can't afford that. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Seems like it, it, it goes on, and, and certainly, <laughs> as we said, profit is the most important thing, it seems, that, you know, in colonialism, slavery, imperialism, and associated evils, it's all part of the same picture of causing the pollution, just profits over everything. And, and we just can't go on like that. It's really threatening the survival of the planet itself. No exaggeration, as you know. And at the core of your prescription of how we get from a belief in scarcity to getting that there really is enough to go around is the concept of a floor and a ceiling. And I must tell you, back in like 1970, in the heady times of that era, it occurred to me, why not have a floor and a ceiling? Sure, let, let rich people get rich, just not too rich. And let poor people be poor, just not too poor. Then I didn't hear any other voices agreeing. And here you are. It, it will be necessary to clamp a ceiling, as you say, on the resource consumption of the world's affluent while simultaneously establishing a floor under resource access for those across, across the earth who now lack the essentials of a good life. Well, so far, it's like there is no floor. A lot of people in this very wealthy country are quite impoverished. A huge percentage, as I read, could not come up with $400. 
for an emergency. Yet there are a few incredibly wealthy people, not just a thousand million, but hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars, just in the hands of very few people. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah, this is the best illustration of why um, increase in gross domestic product or other measures of wealth accumulation um, overall um, tell us nothing. Well, in fact, when you see that, then you know that um, there's as much harm as good um, being done. Um, And, uh, you know, um, ecological economists have been saying for a long time what what, uh, you were saying, that there should be um, a boat, not not only minimum wage, but uh, maximum income uh, um, uh, laws, uh, and it's it's somewhat encouraging to to see that um, in in Congress that they are actually talking about um, getting rid of the, these um, ridiculous uh, tax cuts that uh, right. over the past thirty years that we've. Uh, uh, that we've seen that we we need uh, to go back to much more progressive taxation, not only of income as we had in the, in the 1950s, the um, right. top uh, bracket of income, 90 percent right. tax. Uh, we need not not only that, but we need to go after the the um, resource consuming and waste producing activities that are enriching um, this uh, upper class. And and the main thing uh, to do there um, is, as I've uh, been advocating for several years now, a a cap on uh, fossil fuels, on the amount Uh of oil, gas, and coal that can come out of the ground, um, and and that cap declining to zero in in, uh, not too many years, that in itself will prevent the accumulation of these obscene uh, accumulations of dollars because all of that happened and was made possible by the fossil fuel bonanza of the last century. And without that uh, huge supply of concentrated energy, uh, that's not going to be possible. Concentrated energy. I think that's, personally, I think that's, that's one of the keys is that, you know, to have power and wealth concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. That's kind of a problem. And I kind of thought, quite frankly, back in the 1770s when uh, the colonies said, hey, you know, we want to govern ourselves and not have all of us uh, subservient to these super wealthy aristocrats who we can't touch. Here we are again, so it seems. And the earth is paying a huge, huge price for that. And we just... We can't do it anymore. And, of course, the, uh, the idea of a, of a floor and a ceiling. Some people, especially, uh, and again, knowing a little bit about history in the 1848 revolution across uh, Central Europe, is it turns out the aristocrats, their most ardent defenders were the people who were most at effect the peasants, the poor people. they, they def- And still today, people say, well, they made the money, let them keep it. They don't have to, you know, pay anymore. They've earned their money. What's what's your response to that? <laughs> um, yes, I've been uh, 
frustrated for uh, many years by uh, people's indifference to to the fact that the the economy exists to benefit only these uh, a few people and 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 you know I used to hear a lot what you're saying well you know Bill Gates didn't take any of my money if he if he wants to have that much money fine right. but I'm I'm happy to see that in in the past few years that finally politicians seem not to be not afraid to say we're going to um, do something about this and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez yes. can wear that uh, that dress with tax the rich on the back, which would have been just uh, an unbelievable uh, even a decade ago. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That is true. We are we are getting there, and a lot of you know what's going on is really shaking us up. You know, the COVID crisis and, and the the crisis of yeah. the planet itself is starting to wake yeah. us up. So we need to do something serious. For those who may have just tuned in, our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Stan Cox, who's got a new book coming out in November. The Path to a Livable Future: A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next pandemic and he uh, has an article in yes magazine titled enough for everyone the idea that unrestrained wealth accumulation may not be a positive good does seem foreign to most americans how can we get enough people to realize that it's not only not sustainable but it's also incredibly dangerously denying that the climate crisis is real and urgent I think once again, I think that you know, public opinion is is turning. Um, we we saw during the um, election campaign last year, and when they were polling people not only on their voting preferences but on uh, what issues they were most concerned about, uh, uh, climate has been uh, rising steadily. Um, it, it, it you know was um, as they were as concerned about that as they were about the the pandemic, um, and so I I think that they, and then most of all they are uh, realizing that uh, that growth in wealth measured in dollars is um, uh, is at the root of the climate emergency and it's not not benefiting everybody. That's, a, I think, a really good point. Uncontrolled wealth is at, at the center of it. And, you know, you, you talked about uh, the, the tax rate uh, back in the, in the 1950s for, the, for a certain percentage of income over and above a certain amount was 90%. And we had a very large middle class. There was tremendous prosperity, widely distributed, not for people of color, I will recognize, right. but for you know, in general during the 1950s. And before that was Franklin Roosevelt, arguably the greatest president in America ever. That's my opinion. He had flaws, but anyway. In his 1941 State of the Union speech, he articulated famously the four freedoms. And they were freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. And along these lines, your essay cites Chilean economist Manfred Max Neef, I hope I pronounced that right, who identified nine underlying universal needs. What are they? And is it realistic to think that they can be met 
within the context of cooling down uh, overheated consumption? Yes, okay. I've, I've got the list here. There were, um, he identified nine um, of these um, underlying needs, and they're not the, the kind of things that, you know, we think of it, food, shelter, et cetera. The, these are much broader yes. um, human needs, and they they seem kind of like um, abstractions, but um, they're uh, subsistence, protection, affection, understanding, participation, idleness, creation, identity, and freedom. And he he said that these are unvarying. That uh, no matter wh- which culture, which century mm-hmm. you're in, that pe- people require all of these things. And then, um, and it's interesting that there's only one of them, subsistence, which um, is connected to the the need for um, uh, exploitation of resources and and. The uh, all of our uh, questions of uh, what is enough seem to relate yes. to material needs, and and that's all in subsistence. The others, um, and, and what he said was that the, you know, those kind of things are satisfiers of the needs, and the needs themselves are um, are universal and timeless. But mm-hmm. the satisfiers that we require do. Um, change over time, um, but um, when, when we're um, talking about all these things, we're mainly talking about the uh, ecological impact of satisfying subsistence, um, which we can do, um, but we can't um, satisfy this um, the machine that's uh, attempting to grind out uh, uh, unlimited wealth. Mm. Well, I'll tell you, thinking back to that wonderful period of the late 60s, early 70s, I could picture that, yeah, in the future, there would be enough to go around. People don't need to be wage slaves. They don't need to work, you know, 40 hours a week. We can spread it out that there if there is enough and if people can, you know, have a little bit of the slice of the pie, uh, then they can be more fully human. You know, maybe that's crazily idealistic, but be more creative and and you know, as uh, as Jung talked about, uh, uh, authentic authenticity. You know, uh, being authentic human beings, and uh, I still think right. I think it's it's possible. I mean, look here we are. This is <laughs> this climate crisis and the you know all that stuff. I did not picture that for the twenty first century. I figured we'd have you know, focus on education and, and taking care of people's needs because it can be done. But there's a lot of yeah. uh, people, you know, the idea that, that we could have a universal basic income, universal basic services, some people, as you know, Stan, uh, would consider that immoral, you know, that there be global decent living standards. Uh, please speak to this objection, please. Well, I'm afraid that's another of the uh, idiocies of uh, capitalism that it's uh, that it's immoral. Um, that that uh, yeah, say if um, you and your family um, 
want to have uh, good nutrition, decent housing, electricity, water, mobility, that um, that can um, be a, a right of yours only if you're receiving more than the median income or more, more than a certain amount uh. of, of income. Those, um, you know, those are all the, the, um, the satisfiers of, of uh, subsistence, and um, our society can easily afford them. The the reason that um, that, that this is uh, that uh, things like universal basic services are mm-hmm. considered immoral is that there need um, to um, keep the wealth generation machine going. Um, there needs to be a mechanism to put pressure on uh, people to work uh, more, you know, longer hours, work harder and because they they've got to generate more and more income to just to keep their heads above water um and so they um, they can produce more output and the um the owning and investing classes can skim off the surplus of that and people um will make uh, enough maybe to keep them going but um Instead of having good, solid public transportation convenient, um, people have to work uh, countless extra hours every year to to uh, buy and and service and and feed fossil fuels into Mm. a private vehicle. Mm. (laughs) So we are here to feed the fossil fuel industry. I got it. That makes sense. Who am I to object to that? Yeah. As you note in your essay, universal basic services are out of reach in countries where after centuries of colonization, imperialism, and exploitation, most people lack sufficient access to resources, especially energy. That must change, end of quote. And it's also true in this country. A lot of people in inner cities, for example, where there is no public transportation, you know, they don't have cars. Uh, because of that, uh, they they don't they're lacking basic services and and they have to struggle really hard just to get basic services and it, as you say that must change. What is a good realistic solution to this aspect of the problem? I well one uh, one thing I always say about this is that but, uh, even before um, the uh, affluent countries. Um, try to start doing something to uh, change this situation. We have to first stop doing what what we're already doing, you know, treating other countries as uh, just uh, sources of uh, cheap labor or raw materials, and to um, uh, treat them as as uh, human beings, uh, and to follow uh, once again that um, uh, ethical obligation to uh, that the um the parties who have uh create helped create this problem owe um uh, owe damages uh, need need mm-hmm. to um and and this has been the biggest uh, debate uh in uh in the climate world over the past couple of decades is the idea of what they use the shorthand loss and damage how, how much do we need to um, repay um, to um, 
say, uh, Indonesia, because their capital, Jakarta, is basically going to be underwater uh, mm. pretty soon. And oh. it, um, uh, so um, it's mainly a matter of paying what's called our climate debt and and also our debt for uh, colonization, uh, et cetera, um, and to do it um, in a way in which, you know, not by uh, building um, coal-fired power plants <laughs> in, in those countries, but to uh, make it a, a more a sustainable um, uh, uh, issue. And that certainly is possible. There's a the the, the yeah. growth. And, you know, this country loves growth. There is growth in the sustainable energy field, and it's finally starting to happen. I mean, the, the, the oil interests yeah. have been uh, <laughs> putting stumbling yeah. blocks before it for years and years and years, but it it's, happens to be happening, whether they like it or not. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Stan Cox, who has a new book coming out, The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next Pandemic. And Stan, you talk about global energy justice. I, I don't think that's a phrase many people have heard. Please paint a picture of what that would look like and, and perhaps how it might be made to happen. It's a big one. Okay, well, here I, uh, there's actually a literal um, picture that we can turn to. You mentioned um, my uh, article, in Enough for Everyone, in the fall issue of uh, Yes magazine. Um, accompanying that article, um, Yes published uh, uh, infographics, they, they called it, um, kind of illustrating how uh, energy uh, justice might look. So if, if you uh, look up Yes Magazine and uh, um, the graphic is titled, How Much is Enough? Right. Um, and there, um, uh, artist uh, Tracy Matsui Laffelholtz um, did a magnificent job. But it it lines up all the countries of the world from and based on their per capita energy consumption from the lowest to the highest. And it's, uh, it's one of those uh, hockey stick type graphs that you know, yeah. there are a lot of very low consumers. And then, then you get to the U S and other countries and it, it goes through the roof. And, um, and then um, uh, she drew a line uh, very, very, very low on the graph, horizontal line all the way across at 1,300 watts per capita. Uh -huh. Just the measure of the continuous energy flow that an uh, that a, um, a nation would require to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals. That is to provide what's called uh, 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 decent living standards uh, for for the whole country. 1,000. 300 watts, which is comparable to, uh, say, the supply of energy in Cuba today. Um, in the United States, Canada, we're, um, mm. our energy flow is between nine and 10,000 watts, so many times the, the amount that we actually need to, to have a decent life. And the um, 
the, the long-standing um, idea of contraction and convergence is said about emissions, and this would apply to energy too, that the uh, affluent nations need to um, deeply reduce um, their emissions, which is going to mean um, deeply reducing our use of fossil fuels and, and uh, energy, um, and that at the same time, um, countries that are living below that 1,300 watts and, and many like the average over the continent of Africa is about 600 watts. That um, that's where um, the these proposals for a massive mobilization of uh, wealth from the north to build renewable energy systems in in the south is needed. Boy, that brings up a lot of uh, almost philosophical issues. That you know, a lot of people in America would say. What I'm going to turn on my air conditioner to 68 degrees all the time, you know. I'm not going to turn off my lights. I get, you know, I have the freedom <clears throat> to leave it on yeah. all the time. You know, how, you expect me to help these people that aren't helping themselves. That's you know, that's going to be a lot of people would say that. That what yeah. do I owe these these poor countries uh, and and people in Africa and Asia and South America places like that? Uh, why why should I have to give up my freedoms to to help these people? You know, if they're not we we helped ourselves, we got to be a wealthy nation. What about them? <laughs> Your response. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, we see a vivid illustration of this uh, problem you're you're describing when people won't even uh, they express their freedom by re refusing to wear a mask or get a shot. Just imagine if they um, re were um, required to live on, say, uh, two thousand watts per capita, which is considered what you know, modern industrial society should be able uh, to live on you know it just they uh it, I, I don't it, it's going to be very difficult to um to uh get over that back in 2010 i wrote um on op-ed in the washington post about the um, problems caused by air conditioning and, and i was envisioning how dc might look Without air conditioning, you know, it wouldn't be such a terrible place. And I've I've never gotten so much uh, hate mail in my life. And there were 67 pages of uh, comment. This was you know, um, back in May, wow. a lot more uh, email stuff. So I I, for, I forgot how many emails I got, but man, that people were they were actually saying, "You can have my air conditioner when you pry it out of my cold <laughs> dead hands." <laughs> <laughs> I have the freedom to, like you said, to turn down the thermostat. Right. And we've heard that about guns so much. And, you know, I, I, I kind of get the impression that uh, unrestrained uh, uh, gun ownership, you know, buy any damn gun you want, uh, has caused mm -hmm. a few problems. You know, just a few problems. <laughs> right. And maybe, yeah. you know, maybe with, with uh, uh, you know, freedom comes responsibility Whoa, <laughs> there's a concept. Right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I, I, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, that some people, I, I find it, I'm hoping that someday 
psychiatrists will be able to diagnose these incredibly hyper-rich people needing more, 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 if they can diagnose that and treat that, because it's a sickness, in my opinion, and it, it's, it's, it's exceedingly harmful. But it, as you say, you know, there's never enough. Continuous growth, which we've, that's how we measure things. Growth, let's get the economy growing again. Growth, 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 Democrats and Republicans. Continuous growth implies there's never enough. Our very identity has been about growth. People freak out when our economy stagnates. In the late 60s, we hippies and yippies began to question untethered growth, unrestrained growth. And in order to halt climate destruction, to bring carbon emissions down to an acceptable level, we will have to do it using much less energy. And that's scary to a lot of people. The U.S. of the future really cannot be a growth economy. Whoa, that's a really big change. Won't people resist rather fiercely when we've just, you know, we've worshipped at the altar of growth and to suggest, wow, maybe we don't need that. I think it's starting to happen, but why don't you talk to that, please? It's really business and, and government who are obsessed with growth. What people want is better lives, more secure lives. And and there is a ton of uh, research uh, over the past couple of decades showing that um, in very low-income nations, say those who are living below that 1,300 watts per person, that as... um, the GDP increases, you see improvement in people's lives. They they finally have uh, electricity. They, yes. you know, they may have more more to eat. Um, but that effect levels out very quickly, and um, at at um, very at modest uh, levels of uh, uh, GDP or GDP growth, um, you. GDP and increases in GDP no longer improve quality of life or standard of living for the average person, and they, um, they and there are uh, countries that, that um, do a, lo- a little better. They um, have uh, higher quality of life at a somewhat lower GDP, and then. And ones like uh, the U.S., where um, we, we you know, have this very high GDP, but according to many um, sustainable development indicators, we're you know we're, we're have worse infant mortality, et cetera, than countries with much lower one. Mm. Yeah, having uh, more, much, much, much more than enough for a few, and not enough for a whole bunch of people. It just doesn't strike me as right. And and as you say, using less energy, reducing emissions means not just new decentralized sustainable producers of electricity and new not yet developed energy technologies, but serious conservation can add more energy. Juice, juice, for example, that now goes out the window, quite literally. Um, What about an FDR-style New Deal creating many new jobs, retrofitting retrofitting old energy-wasting buildings. And let me add to that before you answer, 
solar rooftop solar photovoltaic panels. Uh, they can they generate electricity. The the big uh, uh, you know centralized facilities don't like it. But right now, only people of means can afford rooftop solar photovoltaic panels. But they can really help. Just for example, and and the technology is certainly there. So what about an FDR style New Deal? creating a lot of jobs, retrofitting old energy wasting buildings and providing, you know, sustainable uh, electricity sources. I, I, what do you think about that? And, you know, I wonder how the general population might feel about that. Yeah, I think the, those kind of conservation measures and, and especially um, in insulation and yes. other um, retrofitting um, should be the uh, very top priority of any um, uh, Green New Deal type uh, program. And in FDR, um, they, in the FDR days, they had the um, Civilian Conservation Corps, yes. um, and, and they were mainly focused on um, the outdoors and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, f uh, federal lands and, and, and so forth. But um, I see that at least in the proposals for um, this reconciliation bill, that there's some kind of a conservation core uh, in there. So that, um, that's a good sign. Um, as for um, household uh, solar, you, one thing you're right about is that um, there um, are huge disparities in the the ability of uh, people to have that because it's it's a it's big expensive. investment and yeah. they, they've also uh, studies have shown <clears throat> that uh, black and Latino home homeowners or neighborhoods um, have much less um, access to um, uh, rooftop solar for for one thing yeah um, the renters aren't aren't going to uh, be able to do it. And, and, you know, people who uh, uh, don't um, have, have enough uh, income. And um, there's what, there's a proposal uh, for Puerto Rico that I, I really like. They, um, you know, with Hurricane Maria, they mm -hmm. uh, lost, uh, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of uh, um, roofs. And, and they, there was, most severe damage to fossil fuel power plants, but also their wind and solar farms were damaged. But they, um, they, they're proposing there that you have clusters of maybe 10 households who have a, a common, uh, and, and the main thing was their power lines went down. So have a, have a common uh, solar installation there that they all, uh -huh. live on and it's connected to the grid but and if, if you have another power outage like they had for months and right. it's off the grid it, it can operate independently yes. so and in that way it's more of a neighborhood or community thing that it, you know in, individuals don't don't have to fork over and so forth the common good you know if people on the right forget that our founders you know not only about freedom but about tying that, uh, uh, harnessing that to the common good. That really was. And uh, we, I, I think we're starting to move in that direction. And uh, you say, if we in the U.S. undertake 
a sufficiently rapid phase-out of fossil fuels, we must be prepared to live with a diminished energy supply. Consequently, the federal government would need to make sure the economy continues to satisfy basic needs. And you also say, and to make that happen, we'd need a real change in industrial policy that shifts, as you say, resources toward the production of essential goods and services away from wasteful and superfluous production. End of your quote. And... (laughs) I have to tell you, when I think of wasteful and superfluous production, our economy is based largely on Christmas production. And it's stuff that ends up in the landfill almost immediately. And it's such a big factor in in our economic strength. So my question is, who is to determine wasteful and superfluous? Have any governments taken on that challenge successfully? Um, yes, the, the answer to that is yes. And before I explain, I, I want to say I generally am against using um, World War II as an example for anything. It was a very, you know, very unusual uh, period. Um, and that um, a, a lot of people are talking about a climate mobilization needs to be um, like the mm. uh, war mobilization of the 19. 19- uh, 40s, mm. and what they're talking about is instead of building um, aircraft and, and ships, we'd be um, building uh, solar and wind farms and uh, batteries and electric cars and so forth. So I, my the lesson that I take from the World War II era is is not that necessarily, but it's um, the uh, agency called the War Production Board, which did. Uh, took on that challenge that mm-hmm. you're talking about to steer resources toward essential goods and services and away from uh, stuff that we don't actually need. Um, and and they yeah, they did that just overnight. Uh, the whole economy was uh, transformed overnight. They stopped making automobiles and making tanks. Well, we could stop making automobiles and, and make uh, light rail and, and so forth. But um, it is possible um, to do that. Of course, um, it's um, this idea of what they call industrial policy, where you Uh actually plan what's being produced instead of um, just letting companies produce whatever uh, is going to earn the most profit um, is another thing that uh, you know, a capitalist society is going to have an uh, allergic reaction to. But it, 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 if we do what's necessary to um, reduce emissions, then some of that is going to be uh, necessary for sure. And it really can result in a greater degree of freedom, that freedom is not just, I mean, how it can, how free are you if you don't have the basic essentials of life? You know, that's that's not right. real freedom. And freedom doesn't mean just the freedom of the super wealthy to keep making more and more and more superfluous stuff and profiting from it and, and not caring about the waste uh, of which there is a tremendous amount. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is uh, Stan Cox, who's got a new book coming out, The Path to a Livable Future, A New Politics to Fight Climate Change, Racism, and the Next Pandemic. And we're basing the discussion on an article in Yes Magazine, very interesting magazine, uh, just called Enough for Everyone. What a concept. And 
you know, you talked a little bit about World War II. Since then, military expenditures have been the gorilla in the room. It eats far more than anyone else, yet no one dares talk about it. Maybe we're getting closer to the time when Americans reconsider our heavy military presence across the world. Maybe, maybe we're starting to learn that, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. What about, I mean, and the military waste, I don't think they even have the same, uh, uh, you know, pollution standards as, as the rest of us. Talk about that, if you would, please. The, the military gorilla in the room. Okay, you, you prompted me here, I think, to, um, I need to um, uh, correct myself or revise my um, remarks. I was saying that insulating buildings should be our top priority. I think first cutting the military should be the ah. top priority. And then, <laughs> yes. and, and then second to that would be insulating yes. the buildings. But yeah, that is um, yeah, absolutely should be a top priority. It's one of those things that we already need to be doing for many reasons. Um, and, but if you look at the, the quantities of fuel that uh, just the Air mm. Force uh, uses in a year. I forgot if it's um, the the U.S. military would be something like the world's 20th or 15th largest emitter if it were a country. It's, um, it's just ridiculous. Yeah, and what does it get us? What does it get us? And this, you know, right. having to show off this macho show of, you know, we got faster planes, heavier planes. Yeah, you know, just the tremendous noise they make should be sort of like a, huh, isn't that interesting? Let's take a, a yeah. look at that. And what, what, you're, what we're talking about to, to many people could appear to be a utopian fantasy. But as you point out, planned resource use, price controls, and rationing may all seem alien to the current U.S. economy, but... They are, in fact, important pieces of mid-20th century American history, end of quote. What can we learn, both positive and negative, from that experience of, of you know, planning, price controls, resource use, uh, and, and rationing? How can it be made better? What can we learn from experience? Well, past experience um, um, in, in dealing with scarcity has been a case in, as uh, in the 1940s when scarcity was uh, imposed, we we didn't seek mm -hmm. it out, and um, and then the um, then planned resource use, price controls, rationing, all are um, have to be a response to that to make sure that everyone gets a fair share, and and that uh, nobody's left out and there's sufficiency uh, for everybody. Um, today, we're faced with the need to do what no, no large society has ever done to intentionally leave resources alone mm. and, and not exploit them and, and thereby reduce our capacity for um, uh, generating wealth uh, for the few and, and, and all of that. Um, so, um, and, and then right, once again, we'll, we'll need these adaptations to it. And, and I always have to stress that 
And people think of rationing as a way to reduce consumption, but that's not what it is. Reducing consumption has to be done through other means, like this cap on fossil fuels that I was uh, talking Mm -hmm. about. Then, but then once that's done, then um, we need to uh, plan production more. We need to not allow inflation to go rampant because there's uh, a lower supply and high demand. And uh, to make sure that everyone has enough then um, for essential goods that yeah. may be in short supply, um, especially energy, um, that um, rationing will ensure that. So it's a fairness thing. It's not a, a cut people's consumption thing. Yeah, and it is that dire. I mean, it really is that dire. And I think people are finally waking up to that. Let me ask you this. Does what we're talking about not conflict with capitalism itself? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, it uh, absolutely does. (laughs) Um, And uh, but um, but because we're faced with this um, um, existential need to um, uh, to uh, cut. Uh, cut our use of fossil fuels to cut production. Because of that, the um, logical corollary of what we're talking about conflicting with capitalism is that capitalism is incompatible with a, a living, livable earth. If if we have to, uh, in order to preserve capitalism, have to um, violate the uh, planetary ecological boundaries, then we're, you know, it's a, a suicide mission. Uh, capitalism is one of those creatures that can't survive in captivity. And so our attempts to um, uh, restrain it uh, for the sake of the earth are, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's going to um, not be able to survive that because unlimited growth in a closed system isn't possible. Mm. Good point. And I'm remembering I saw a, I believe it was in the New Yorker cartoon of a bunch of uh, white men sitting around a fire in a cave saying, yeah, we destroyed the earth, but boy, that was, show was profitable. All <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, it. <laughs> and the concept of limited good has been the foundation mm-hmm. of our economic system for a long time long time that there's not enough to go around could it be that in the third millennium ad which we've just begun it's nearing time for that underpinning to be thrown out as no longer useful your thoughts well i um it it seems to me that the that um the idea the economists um have talked about for decades now the idea of unlimited good is the the thing that we've got to get over that uh-huh. the, the it's the idea that we can um in, innovate and substitute our way out, out of anything and and it was ba- you know based on like the uh the 1970s um uh energy crisis and so forth that um you know it's and resources are you know, may seem to be finite but uh you know, our economy and our brilliant minds will always um, figure out a way 
to um, uh, uh, to um, work ourselves out of it. We'll we'll always uh, figure something out. Now we're seeing that um, it's not just an idea of where where are we going to get the resources to do it. It's that the the very act of um, producing more and um, and and uh, and really um, a lot of what we innovate um, is um, um, is uh, practices that um, end up having an even larger uh, climate impact. So th- there is not uh, unlimited good that we are have to. Um, there may mm-hmm. there's enough for everyone there, but only if we put limits on what we're willing to to do beyond satisfying people's needs. Good point. That is a good clarification as we end the show. If people want to read uh, more of your stuff, there's Yes Magazine, the article there. Any other uh, sources on that internet thing? Perhaps if they just Google your name, Stan Cox, that might lead them to some stuff? Stan Cox, Climate, Green New Deal, and my two most recent books, the second is coming out in November, are from uh, City Lights oh, books. Yes. So if you go to City Lights books and look for me, um, that'll tell you about those books. Good old City Lights bookstore. Great American institution. Love them. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, it's it's not easy, but uh, things that are really valuable are, are rarely easy to come by. Thank you so much for being with right. us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Stan Cox. Thank you. Thank you, Bert. One world is enough for all of us. One world.